welcome to the Cover 2 Resources podcast series, a podcast series about addiction and addiction education. My name is Amy McNeil. I lost my brother Samuel to a heroin overdose on October 23rd, 2015. He was 28. As a family, we thought we were prepared to help Sam fight addiction, but we were painfully mistaken. My family founded Cover 2 Resources in memory of Sam. Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Greg McNeil from Cover 2 Resources. On Wednesday, October 2nd, the Cato Institute hosted a special event on Capitol Hill. The event was all about saving lives from opioid overdoses, and it included a naloxone policy discussion as well as training. Joining me today to talk about that event and other recent developments in harm reduction is Dr. Jeffrey Singer, who is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. Dr. Singer also works in the Department of Health Policy Studies. He is a principal and the founder of Valley Surgical Clinics, which is the largest and oldest group private surgical practice in Arizona. And he was involved in the creation and passage of the Arizona Healthcare Freedom Act and served as treasurer of the U.S. Health Freedom Coalition. He writes and speaks extensively on regional and national public policy with a specific focus on the areas of healthcare policy and the harmful effects of drug prohibition. So, Dr. Singer, it's a delight to welcome you today. Well, thank you for having me. Can we start off by kind of giving our listeners a little bit of background on the Cato Institute? I think most people have probably heard of the Koch brothers by now, two extraordinary uh, and, and very capable entrepreneurs who built America's largest privately held company. And Charles Koch provided initial funding for Cato back in the mid-70s, and both he and David Uh, generously provided much of the support for Cato throughout its history. So how much influence do they have on the Institute's work today, doctor? I don't think you can really say per se that they have influence except for the fact that being libertarians, um, they share the general philosophical uh, viewpoint that the Institute was created to uh, it was created, you know, under uh, uh, one of the founders. Also, was Ed Crane, uh, and also involved in the founding was a uh, economics professor, Murray Rothbard. So um, it's it's not like uh, it, it's. I think it's uh, misleading to suggest this is uh, some sort of a project of, of quote unquote the Koch brothers. Uh, Charles Koch gave seed money, and uh, his brother served on a board. And so we're not. There's no official position of Cato Institute on anything. With that background out of the way, I thank you for that. Let's pivot to the special event that you hosted on Capitol Hill, Saving Lives uh, from Opioid Overdoses, the Naloxone Policy Discussion. So in that session, I understand you talked about what's working and what's not working. Share that with us. Naloxone has been around since uh, the early 1970s. Actually, it was invented in the 1960s. And uh, it's uh, extremely effective, as, as your listeners know, uh, uh, antidote to uh, an opioid-induced overdose because it uh, binds with the same receptors that the opioid binds to 
and it binds so strongly it'll it'll displace opioids that are already bound to the receptors. Um, And among the things that the opioid, the ones we know most about, the opioid receptors do, is uh, with enough of a dose of opioid, it could suppress respiration, and that's the cause of overdose death because you stop breathing. So what naloxone will do is relatively quickly displace any opioid that's bound to the receptor and take its place. But once it takes its place, it doesn't do anything. It doesn't stimulate the things that the opioid does when it's bound to the receptor. It just blocks it. So this reverses the effects that had been created by the opioid that it displaced. So it could very rapidly, within a, in a, a couple of minutes, it could bring somebody back who's not breathing. Um, but it wears off. It lasts up to about 90 minutes. So, um, you know, once you brought that person back, depending on what is in their system, it could still be there and it could start to reoccupy the receptors, the receptor sites and uh, start start bringing back those same problems again. So it's, a, it, it's important to know that once you resuscitate someone with an naloxone, that doesn't mean problem solved and you can just move on. You need to, to, to get that person help because they may need another dose. Uh, eventually, the opioid in the system will wear off, but they may need observation and repeated dosages until whatever residual opioid has, has uh, dissipated. So anyway, that's been around uh, when I was a resident in the 1970s, I'm, I'm, I'm an older guy, so I'm a, I'm a general surgeon. When I was doing my residency, we always, uh, even back then, you know, you, you'd be, uh, prescribe intravenous morphine or, or Demerol was very popular back then too, another opioid, to patients uh, in post-operative pain. And some everybody's different. So, you know, uh, particularly based upon age, underlying physiology, kidney function, what other meds are in your system, some people will... everybody reacts differently to every drug. So there'll be some people who you give them the normal dose for that problem and they stop breathing. Um, Particularly, we'll see this in elderly people who could be more fragile. So we always have these patients monitored and they have uh, uh, oximeters usually. So if their oxygenation uh, is starting to drop, which means they're not breathing enough, usually there's an alarm that alerts the nursing station and the nurses come in and going back even into the 1970s, this is not new stuff. Uh, the nurses had a standing order where um, if you think the patient's not breathing because maybe they're having an overdose reaction, administer the, the, the intra, intravenously the naloxone and, th- and then call a doctor because time is precious. And calling the doctor, waiting for the doctor to call back could be critical. So just administer it. And if it turns out that the naloxone uh, that that it was not due to a, you know an opioid overdose, then you didn't do any harm because naloxone, aside from that, is harmless. So uh, meanwhile, at least you got that going. Then you can call a doctor, and if it turns out that did nothing, then it's time to start thinking of something else. Increasing numbers of, of people are dying from opioid related overdose deaths, and now nowadays most of those people, of course, are not patients. These are people who are non medical users. Uh, oftentimes not really part of the, of the uh, you know, accessing the mainstream healthcare system. A lot of these people are living on the streets or living, uh, at least, you know, living at, at the margins and they're, they're intravenous drug users. The latest uh, information we have from the CDC is uh, in 2017, 75% of opioid-related overdose deaths were, uh, involved either heroin or fentanyl. And 40% of all 
drug poisonings, total, total overdoses, which includes categories like cocaine and, and methamphetamine, 40% were fentanyl. And as the DEA has told us, this is not medical fentanyl. This is so-called illicit fentanyl. This is a large, I think 99% of their seizures, are, they, they say, are this. This is fentanyl powder, which is smuggled into this country, sometimes even using the, the, the mail. Uh, a lot of it's manufactured overseas in China, but now in Mexico as well, and then it's, it's smuggled in. A lot of uh, dealers have pill presses, and they press it in, press the powder into counterfeit prescription-type opioids. Uh, that's how Prince died, we, we learned. Uh, a couple years ago, everybody knows he supposedly died of a, he, he died of a drug overdose. His, his drug of choice was hydrocodone or Vicodin. He apparently, the medical record showed he never once went to a doctor. He had a dealer who got him his, his uh, Vicodin. That's what he liked to use. So uh, this time, the Vicodin turned out to be counterfeit. It looked like Vicodin. He thought it was Vicodin. It was fentanyl. That's, that's what the coroner's report found, that he overdosed from fentanyl. I want to dive a little deeper on the subject of Prince. Um, in 2016, he died of a fentanyl overdose, as everyone knows. And two years later, the autopsy report was released to his family. But then it was also quickly leaked to the press, and that was against court orders. And here's a YouTube clip from Prince's friend explaining the shocking autopsy results. So obviously everybody knows that fentanyl is very deadly, and um, this is not new. But what we've found is that in the toxicology report for Prince, there, the, the, the levels of the fentanyl in his system were huge. Okay, so um, looking at the uh, toxicology report, it says that his blood fentanyl, that's the stuff that's actually flowing through his system, was 67.8 milligrams, where like three is deadly. More than what should kill somebody, and he's like 100, he was a 112 pounds, so it was way more than his body should have been taking. He should have taken way less than that. Um, his liver fentanyl, and the, the liver fentanyl is different than the blood fentanyl. The blood fentanyl is the stuff that's flowing through your system. The liver fentanyl is like leftover that your body has been processing and whatnot. Um, that was at 435 milligrams. Um, and basically anything over 69 is supposed to be toxic. So, so there's that. Like those two numbers by itself are just astronomical. Um, way, way too much of this stuff in his system, and way more than I think anybody would have taken accidentally. So definitely, in my opinion, is not an accidental death at this point. Um, that basically leaves two options. It's either he gave himself a giant handful of pills and he committed suicide, or I think that somebody might have given him those pills and I mean because it's just like the 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 level is not is crazy like if he had like 10 in his system and three is lethal and he had 10 like oh man maybe he accidentally took a couple of extra pills but 69 that's kind of crazy like I just don't I don't quite understand that um, there was another article that I got as well um, that was sent to me by Peace Love, so thank you, Peace Love. Um, and uh, she uh, sent me over this thing that said uh, the um, basically it compares the amount of fentanyl in his system based on how many people uh, like should basically um, the amount of 
fentanyl in his system could have killed him eight, over 8,000 times. It also could have killed uh, an Asian elephant up to 7,275 pounds. That's just crazy, the amount of the stuff that was in his system. And then the last part is that the 14,000 gastric, the, the 14,000 milligrams of gastric, that's actually the biggest thing. And that's the one that's using here, the, the 8,000 princes, the, <laughs> you know, the 7,000 pills. Because 14,000 milligrams in his system, that means that it was ingested, not injected. Um, that means that that's how much he swallowed and then his body couldn't process it and so it killed him. The whole idea is the more uh, naloxone we can get out to the street, to where, to where the people are, the uh, more lives we can save because the, the overdose death rate is, you know, is, is coming alarming to all of us now. It's been well known that naloxone is safe to use. You don't have to be a doctor to use it. Just, there's very simple instructions. It can be used by lay people. Um, and uh, um, in countries like uh, in Italy in 1996, they made naloxone completely over the counter, so you could just buy it off the shelf, like you'd buy a you know box of razor blades and box of naloxone and check out at the cash register. They did the same thing in Australia in, in 2016. In this country, um, it's a prescription-only drug, but because it is, uh, a, a, like I say, aside unless you happen to have an allergy to it, aside from Aside from that, if you give it to someone, uh, uh, it really, aside from blocking or being the antidote for an opioid uh, overdose, it doesn't do anything else. So it can't harm you. It's been encouraged uh, since the, uh, at least since 2010, it's been encouraged that more and more people need to get it. But because it's categorized as a prescription only drug, for a while there, you couldn't get it without a prescription. So um, many, all 50 states now have developed workarounds uh, in order to make it more available to the general public without having to go to a doctor or pay a doctor's visit and get a prescription or get, get it filled and all that, which is not practical if you want to get this widely distributed. Sure. So they've issued standing orders, right? How does standing orders work? So a standing order is um, you need a doctor to order this. So. In our state, and in most states, the director of health policy, the director of health uh, services happens to be a physician, an MD. So Dr. Christ is her name. She basically officially said to all pharmacists in the state of Arizona, if somebody wants to, it comes up to the counter wanting naloxone and they need a prescription, I'm the prescriber. You have it. You, you've heard it from me in advance. Just consider me the prescriber and you may hereby give it to that person. That'll be the prescribing physician. So that's one way around it. And that's, a, that's pretty practical. Another way uh, is, uh, as some states have done, is they've passed law. States have the right to, to decide the scope of practice of any licensed healthcare practitioner. And the definition of prescription drug by the FDA is it, has, it can only be given by a, a healthcare practitioner licensed by the state. So some states have just said, we hereby uh, uh, give permission. As we expanded the scope of practice of the pharmacist to prescribe naloxone. And that way, you don't have to go to the doctor. You can just get it from the pharmacist. That's happened in a lot of states with other things like vaccinations, uh, you know, where now you don't necessarily have to go to a doctor to get your flu shot. You can get it at the pharmacy, that kind of thing. So that's another workaround. Between those two top techniques, every state has done that. And it's really helped. Uh, there's a lot of data in uh, suggesting, you know, in some states, the states that have been more aggressive in this, like Ohio, where you're broadcasting from, the numbers coming in from CDC for 2018 are very encouraging. There's been actually a drop, particularly in the Cuyahoga County area, 
in overdose deaths. And, uh, of course, the predominant uh, drug that's still responsible for the overdose deaths everywhere in, well, in Ohio and most other states, although it is geographic, is fentanyl now. But uh, they made real progress in Ohio and in some other states where they've really been aggressive getting the naloxone out there. Because of this experience, in 2016, the, the uh, Food and Drug Administration, through a, a blog post, uh, I think it was the deputy commissioner, said, you know, uh, this has been around long enough. We can see it's used by people who don't have to be you know, trained healthcare practitioners. Uh, I think it's ready, or we think at the FDA that it's ready to, to, it's ripe to be considered to to make over the counter. So we invite the manufacturers to petition us to review it, to to change its classification to over the counter. And, uh, uh, you know, here is a link to the site where you fill out the forms and uh, we encourage them to do that. So, in 2016, the FDA endorsed making naloxone available over-the-counter, and they invited manufacturers to petition them to make that happen. But none of them did. It reached the point where this, just this past year, December 2018, uh, Commissioner Gottlieb uh, issued a, a lengthy um, press release and blog post where, where he said, you know, we don't have to do this, but we've gone to the trouble of basically doing all the paperwork for you. And in one of the the uh, things that the FDA uses for it decides to make something over the counter is they look at how good the labeling is because the labeling has to be basic and clear enough for lay people who are buying something over the counter to understand how to use it properly. And normally we make you guys do that and then we review that. But we took the liberty and expense of doing that ourselves. So you don't even have to go to that trouble. Uh, all you really need to do is just give us the green light to start reviewing you to remove you over the counter. We invite you to do that. So it's almost like they're basically filled out everything. You know, they put the X where you got to sign and they gave you the pen and said, just sign here and ready to go. And there's still, there's been no takers. So, and, uh, you know, we could speculate as to, and there's some good reasons to speculate uh, why that hasn't happened. So that's where we are right now. Even after the FDA took care of relabeling naloxone so that it could be made available over the counter, manufacturers still didn't petition to make that happen. I asked Dr. Singer why that was. There's a lot of good research uh, going back to the 80s, uh, particularly uh, by uh, Sam Peltzman, University of Chicago economist, showing that when generally when drugs move from, over the, from prescription only over-the-counter, prices drop dramatically. Um, uh, there's, there's subject to much more competition, uh, the consumer, uh, consumers do a lot of price sh- shopping, comparison shopping. And, uh, so the last time the, uh, FDA moved, uh, numerous cold remedies, for example, that's the last time they, they didn't wait, they didn't get petitioned. The FDA commissioner just said, we're moving these things over the counter. So things like, uh, you know, antacids like Zantac and Prilosec and Claritin, cold remedies, prices drop dramatically. Uh, and there's, there's a lot of healthy competition, also, we know, and there's a lot of good data on this, that when people self-medicate as opposed to get a prescription, they tend to be much more careful <laughs> and cautious. You know, one reason you could speculate is that um, when you, if you're a, a, a pharmaceutical company and you could bill a deep-pocketed third party, you're going to get more money than if you are trying to bill uh, directly the consumer. So... And I mean, I can tell you that as a medical practitioner, practitioners all the time, uh, and, and anybody who's been a patient has gotten an explanation of benefits from their insurance company knows what I'm talking about. 
doctors and hospitals and all sorts of healthcare providers, they charge this uh, artific- really artificially inflated price to the third party because they know that this is sort of a negotiation. And what they're hoping to do is get down to a price that they think is reasonable. So the pharmaceutical companies do the same thing. So, but and on the other hand, if you're dealing directly to the consumer, well, that's a whole different story because the consumer is going to say, "I'm not paying that. I'm forget it." And so you have to lower your price. So that's been the experience, and I can understand the the why that uh, the, the pharmaceutical companies who are making a good profit selling to the third party are are in no hurry. From that also is, uh, as one of my colleague who was at the presentation the other day said, you know, once you have a working business model, it, it just kind of stands to reason that you're not looking for any, all of a sudden, uh, having to, have to, to disrupt that. If you have a working business model and everything changes, you, t- you tend to be reluctant to do that because everything's working. Now you have to kind of, you know, go back and reformulate your business model to, to, to address the new environment. So that's another thing that kind of, um, you know, argues for stasis. In the end, the reason naloxone isn't available today over-the-counter may be as simple as industry has no desire to fix a business system that's not broken. The fact is that uh, under FDA regulations, one way to to make something over-the-counter is to get petitioned by the manufacturer to make it over-the-counter. But according to the regulations, any interested person can request a petition. So that means uh, I'm any interested person, including a you know a group of uh, of um, harm reduction advocates, or a governor, or a state legislature, uh, or the commissioner himself could just say, uh, "Let's uh, let's start the ball rolling, get this thing over the counter." Of course, pending review, and there's a process. And then finally, at the end of the day, there's nothing that prevents Congress from just passing a, a statute saying. This is over-the-counter effect of this in the state. We instruct the FDA to do all the things necessary to make sure that it, that it goes over-the-counter in a proper and safe way. Um, so they could do that. Why haven't they? That's, well, that's, that's, that's the big question. But I think they should. Now, another reason, another thing that I want to make mention is, well, don't we already sort of effectively have it over-the-counter? I mean, you're telling me that in all 50 states you could just get it right from the pharmacy. Well, that, that, that's it's, it's kind of... In a way, it's over the counter. It's not clearly over, not really over the counter, and there, it makes a difference because um, there have been a lot, a lot of reports that show a lot of uh, people on opioids, either as prescribed by their physician or non-medical users out there in, in the in the community, tend to be very reluctant to go up to the pharmacist's counter and request naloxone. They feel they, they, you know, they feel they're being judged. There's a lot of stigma attached to it. It's a red flag, right? In their minds, I'm saying. Right, right, and that's so. That's number one. Number two is it's also um, uh, you, you're not reaching the the whole population that you want to reach. I mean, most of the people who are dying of drug overdoses these days are not like uh, you know patients prescribed a prescription opioid after a surgery who are going to get their prescription filled. These are people out living. Uh, you know, many times living on the street or in just very, very conditions and oftentimes cut off from a lot of information. So they're not the type of people going to go up to, if they even know about it, they're not going to walk up to a pharmacy counter and ask for it. And then finally, uh, we do have a, a problem of, and, of people uh, moralizing. Um, and as an advocate of harm reduction, this is something I'm always up against. So you'll, there are numerous reports of pharmacists 
who say, I'm just not going to stock it or I'm not going to give it out because I'm only enabling people who are engaging in activity that I don't approve of. And uh, so that's been standing in a way. So that's why Australia, for that very reason, decided to make it completely off the shelf in, in, a, in a pharmacy store or a drugstore in 2016. So if we we want to get to that population, the, the way to do that is to make it completely off the shelf. In fact, I, I, I said this in my talk the other day, and I, I mean it, it wasn't humor. The best, ideally, it should make it where it, it could be available in vending machines. We've done that with Plan B, uh, morning after pill, you know, many uh, college dorms. Um, that way, you don't even have to worry about you know, judgmental uh, looks from the person who's checking you out at the checkout counter, you can basically do your transaction with the robot by going to a machine and purchasing, you know, locks on that way. And it's completely confidential. The more we can make it available like that, the more we're going to get it to the population that we want to get it to. And so that's why I think it's important. And I was, that's why we held this at the Capitol Hill, because we're hoping to get this message across to uh, legislators that, you know, the power is in your hands. You could make this over the counter right now. Um, and it, there's, it, there's some promise about this. I met before and after the uh, presentation with uh, uh, senior staff, of uh, a few members of the Senate and a few members of the House. And this is bipartisan. And they, uh, they are aware of this and uh, they seem to be receptive to the idea. Where that goes, I don't know. But they definitely uh, like the idea of getting the locks over the counter. So that, that we could hope. So we've just begun a pilot this past summer in the Akron area uh, of a program that we call a community of first responders. Um, I had a chance, in fact, to uh, talk just very briefly to Josh, your media correspondent there in uh, in your group about that and, and share, ask him to share a link with you. I don't I don't know if he had a chance to do that, but it was the intro to that that program. Um and I, I just mentioned that because of the fact that this is an initiative to try to get naloxone more, make it more readily available in communities by two things. Number one, allowing people to just download a simple app. Anybody can do it. It's called Naloxofind and register. If they're carrying naloxone, register in that app. Um, very simple to do. It takes about five minutes. And once they do, then if they want to help someone, suppose someone begins overdosing that's a block away or so, well, that person that is uh, their advocate right nearby can download or can go ahead and pull up the app, press one button, and bam, it sends out a, um, a, a little text message to all of the registered carriers within a two-mile radius and says, hey, someone needs help. And if one of the registered carriers, if any of them really, that can help, they press one button and they're all connected. It's kind of like an Uber for Narcan. So I wanted to get your thoughts on this concept. And there's one other aspect of it that I'll talk about later that I want to also ask you about. But let's start there. Yeah, when I, when I saw that, I did watch the video. And uh, yeah, I thought that was brilliant. And it, it, first thing that came to my mind also is this is like Uber for Narcan. And uh, surprised, you know, the next thing that comes to your mind is writing somebody this sooner. That's always what happens when you see a great idea. But any, anyway, uh, I think it's a great idea. It's another way of getting it out there. Um, and uh, uh, so I, I, that should be a need, word needs to get out because there, most of us, you know, regardless of how we feel about uh, substance use and substance use disorder, et cetera, we, want, we don't want to see, we want to be helpful. We want to see people 
live. So uh, I know uh, some of the, the, at the Cato Institute, uh, many of my colleagues, uh, you know, we, the, uh, the D.C. Department of Health was distributing uh, Narcan after everybody took that, uh, listened to her presentation and instructions to anybody who wanted. They were distributing Narcan. So uh, most of the Cato staff who were there, they took some too. And a couple of them told me they're keeping it in their backpack because a lot of them actually walk to work because they live in not far away from the Cato Institute. And I say, you never know, I could be walking down the street, somebody's in trouble, at least I could help. So on their own, they're sort of, uh, uh, you know, voluntarily uh, um, doing that. And that's a good idea. Again, a lot of it, uh, unfortunately, depends on, on some of the, of the state rules as well, as you know. Now, D.C. Has got, is great about that. They're basically just, the, the, the D.C. Department of Health is basically saying, anybody who wants to, to learn how to do this, I'll listen to my little lecture, and then I'll give it to you. So they're really trying to get it out to everybody. But, of course, that's a small urban area. We need to get it more widely everywhere, including to, to uh, rural areas, remote areas, which, by the way, is a, this was brought up at the com, at the uh, Hill briefing. That's another advantage of making something over the counter because when it's over the counter, now it's available at something like seven hundred fifty thousand retail stores across the United States. Whereas if it's prescription only, you have to go to a pharmacy. There aren't nearly as many of those. So once it's over the counter, you can see it in places like you know Seven uh, Elevens, convenience stores, maybe even road truck stops. Uh, and because it doesn't have to be sold in a, in a drugstore, um, supermarket maybe. So um, uh, that's a, another another reason for uh, making it over the counter because the whole goal is to get it out there so so uh, ubiquitously that if uh, that if somebody happens to get into trouble, any nearby uh, person who is ready to help until until uh, the first responders come. So another, just right along those lines, um, another thing, innovation that's come about in the last couple of years to do just that is something called the Nalox box. And Nalox box is something that would be a box that is installed in public locations, just like you would a defibrillator. And it stores Narcan along with all of the instructions on how to use it and um, this is a program that's just starting. In fact, it was integrated into that uh, Naloxo Find app so that uh, if within a community uh, they wanted to locate a bunch of these Nalox boxes and have it in public locations like libraries, hotels, or even an airport. So it's another way to get it out there and, and push more into community that way. So you've probably heard of the Nalox box. Yes, and I think it's great. Again, and the more we can get it out, that that's probably the principal reason why we're seeing uh, in in the states that have done these kind of things. And always, like I say, has been very good at that. We're seeing real improvements in the overdose rate. Uh, in states that haven't done that, um, in, in some states the overdose rate continues to climb, like in my state. So um, it, it, it all depends on. It seems like where we've seen improvements is in the states that have been most aggressive harm reduction techniques. Next time, we'll continue our discussion on harm reduction, beginning with Dr. Singer's perspective on syringe exchanges. Not just the naloxone, but uh, for example, I understand that Ohio's also uh, promoted the, the, uh, more needle exchange programs. My state is technically against the law. There are 28 states that have anti-paraphernalia laws so that if you're giving out a needle to someone, you could be arrested. 
We've been joined today by Dr. Jeffrey Singer, a nationally known harm reduction expert and senior fellow at the Cato Institute. On April 6th of 2020, Dr. Springer will debate author Sam Quinones on the premise of his best-selling book, Dreamland, The True Tale of America's Opioid Epidemic. Join us next time as we continue our conversation with Dr. Springer and preview his historic face-off with Mr. Quinones. My name is Greg McNeil. I'm the founder of Cover 2 Resources. For the latest on community events and our podcast series, follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Cover 2 Resources. That's cover and the number two and resources. As always, thank you for listening to this Cover 2 PPT podcast. That's people, places, and things making a difference in the opioid epidemic. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover 2 Resources podcast. This episode is a production of Cover 2 Resources and is made possible by listeners like you. If you'd like to donate or to sponsor a future podcast, please visit cover2.org. As always, thank you for listening. Together, we can make a difference in the opioid epidemic, one life at a time.